Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Scripture Chronicles. This is the podcast where we explore the unified story of the Bible. I'm Dylan. Joining me today is Corey Howitt. Corey, how are you doing today? Doing great. I got to work my favorite job today. I took some kids to the other side of the island, which took all of an hour or so, and surfed some great waves. So I went from working in one office, now back to my bedroom office. I got to say, this office is nice, but not like my, my daytime office. Thank you guys for tuning into the podcast once again today. If this is your first time here, welcome. If you don't know how this works, basically, this podcast is cumulative, meaning that each episode builds on itself. Uh, The reason we do it this way is because we here believe that the Bible is a single unified narrative or story that ultimately points to Christ. And because of that, what we're doing is we're actually going through the text of Scripture and pointing out the big macroscopic or that's the really high view sort of elements that showcase the overall story. So instead of, you know, those Bible studies where you focus on one verse for a solid year, instead of doing that, we're running through the Bible in kind of big chunks so that you guys can see the story of the scripture unfold before your eyes. So with that, today we are actually in Exodus 19, and we're going to be covering a smaller section today than we have in the past few episodes. We're doing chapters 19 and 20 today. There's a lot packed into these two chapters. There's a lot of buildup to these two chapters, so we think it warrants the extra time spent on them. However, if you want to catch up to us, if you haven't done so, go ahead and listen to the previous episodes that are preceding this one. We are going to give a brief recap of last week's episode and just a little bit about the book that we're in right now. We're in Exodus. So, so far we've had quite a bit happen, even up to the titulature event. That is the name of the book, Exodus. We had the Exodus already transpire. And so now we are in the desert up to the mountain. But before we get there, Corey, how the heck did we get to the mountain? We talked about the Exodus, as Dylan said. We talked a little bit about the Passover, what that meant, and that being the last plague, the death of the firstborn of the Egyptians and of their cattle. Again, we always laugh, like, how is there still any more cattle? Because so many plagues says, and they wiped out all the cattle. There's somehow still any remaining also died. So that last plague God used to break his people out of Egypt, we saw God come through and what he promised to the people earlier in Exodus saying, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. I'm going to multiply my wonders. And then I'm going to break you out of Egypt. And instead of just getting away for a three-day excursion to the holy mountain, I'm going to break you out for good. But in order to do that, I really need to harden Pharaoh's heart. And so we see them get out of Egypt. And as they're getting out of Egypt, they plunder the Egyptians by asking for their jewelry and golds, and the people were glad to do it. God gave them favor. As the people head out of Egypt, God leads them. It says that he intentionally leads them to the Red Sea, and he makes it look like they're wandering around so that he could stir up Pharaoh and the Egyptians again to proclaim his wonders even more. Pharaoh's looking at the Israelites and saying about the Israelites, they have no idea what they're doing, where they're going. Let's go back and get our labor. Otherwise, we're going to let them go for good. And so they go back, try to get the Israelites. But of course, God uses Moses and his staff to part the Red Sea. 
the Israelites walk through safely on dry ground and the Egyptians are enclosed in the waters. And we saw this song that the people sing after this happens of God toppling horse and rider, but bringing his people through. And even at the end of that song of chapter 15, the end of it was pointing to getting to the mountain of God. That's God's sanctuary. This is abode. So that that's where we are going. That's the small goal we've been pointing out. The big goal is trying to get to the promised land. But that song and everything so far has been pointing to, hey, let's just get to the mountain of God. And then while in the wilderness, while they're heading towards the wilderness of Sinai, the people get hungry, the people get thirsty, and they complain. But they don't complain against the God who just did these wonders. They complain against Moses who is leading them. So we see that the people aren't able to comprehend the invisible God and that this is all his doing. They always go back to Moses. And Moses gets what's really going on here. It's like, no, guys, stop complaining against God because you're not complaining against me. I'm not doing any of this. And so we're seeing a lot of that tension being played out. The people can only focus on what's physically there or what's physically not there, like the food and water that they were dearly missing. But in all these things, God was sparing them. He didn't just lash out and take them out. He was providing for them. And we're now here to the mountain of God. But right before we get to the mountain of God, we see Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, meet Moses in the camp and advises Moses to take the weight off of his shoulders as he's been carrying throughout this whole expedition into the camp, saying, hey, why don't you, you know, tell some people to take care of a thousand people. And then some people can take care of 10 people who are maybe a little bit less trustworthy. Take this load off yourself because so far you've been doing everything yourself. And it sounds like a really good and great idea, Jethro wanting Moses to get help, to carry the burden of all of the people of Israel. It's a great bridge to get into chapter 19. And we'll, we'll draw up more why that sounded like such a good idea and why that was so important. So chapter 19 is them coming before the mountain. It starts out by saying, On the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. Now, if you remember when we were talking about chapter 3, there was a very specific mountain that Moses had gone to. And on that mountain, Moses found an odd anomaly, a bush that seemed to be burning and not burning up. Well, if you remember from that episode, we had said that the name of that mountain was Mount Horeb. Well, we had also pointed out that Horeb is synonymous with Sinai. It's the same mountain. So now we are actually back at the place where Moses in chapter 3 of Exodus had met God on the mountain at the burning bush. Corey pointed out something interesting about days, and namely three days and measurements of times and things like that. Corey, do you mind explaining a little bit more about your observation here? It just seems that authors of the Bible can structure their writings by either settings or events or even talking about time periods. And so here we start out with this is the third new moon since they left Egypt. Right. And so we've seen the third day happen a lot. Like, I don't know if you guys caught on to the idea, but Abraham and Isaac, when he was going to sacrifice Isaac, it was the third day when he saw the mountains. All right. 
Everyone else stay here. Just me and the boy are going up. Uh, it happens a few times in Genesis. And so it's just a piece of structuring that authors use and just like a common way to tell time. We're going to see a lot more of that throughout the Bible. So just know that every detail is planned by these authors. And we're going to see that the number three and the third day, although this is the third moon, mind you, we're going to see the idea of the third day, but it's going to become very theological in nature. And we're obviously going to see that come when Christ comes and it's on the third day when he raises again. But so we're going to see even numbers have a theological importance to authors and to different books. And so it's just starting to build now here in Exodus as it already has been a bit in Genesis. So it's just a third new moon. They're in the wilderness of Sinai, which is the same exact mountain as Horeb. So we shouldn't be thinking, wait a minute, they went to the wrong place. No, they're following God. This is the same mountain we saw in Exodus 3. Um, they set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain. While Moses went up to God, Yahweh called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. It seems like a heavy charge. Dylan, can you unpack some of this for us? We have already in this episode referred back to Exodus 3, probably four or five times. And so if you guys remember what happened in Exodus 3, particularly verse 12, we are expecting that after the people leave Egypt, the short-term goal or what we want to happen immediately is that the people are going to come to the mountain at that point, it was called Mount Horeb. Now we know it's Mount Sinai. It's the same place. They want to come to Mount Sinai and go up on top of the mountain and worship God. So that's the short-term goal that we are looking for. And then the long-term goal, like Corey already said, is that they will get into the land of Canaan. So short-term goal, go up, worship on Mount Sinai. We are now at Mount Sinai. So we should have alarm bells going off on our heads going ding, 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 ding. This is the spot where we're supposed to be. This is good news. God comes to Moses and says to Moses, now, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. Well, we've heard that before in a number of other spots, but obey my voice, keep my covenant, and you shall be my treasured possessions among all the peoples of the earth. You shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So that's what he tells Moses to say to the people. And if you are familiar with the scriptures, you'll probably recognize this kind of kingdom of priests language from the New Testament, maybe even, because that is actually going to be a concept that's revisited later on in the New Covenant. So it's interesting to me that we have this being promised so early on. We as Christians, we associate that with us. We are the, the kingdom of priests. Israel wasn't the kingdom of priests. Huh, what's going on here? Why didn't it seem to work out? Why do we as Christians tend to think about ourselves as a kingdom of priests, but not necessarily Israel pre-New Covenant as the kingdom of priests? We're going to see why that's actually the case. But up until this point, it seems to be that God is cutting another covenant. And we're familiar with the idea of covenants now at this point because we've seen a few of them. We've seen a covenant 
at creation. We've seen another covenant with Noah. We've seen a covenant with Abraham. And now we seem to be having the same sort of covenantal language, if you will. So basically, God saying, if you do this, you're going to receive the blessings of the covenant. And usually covenants in the Old Testament are associated with blessings and curses. If you do the stipulations of the covenant, you're going to be blessed. If you fail to keep the stipulations of the covenant, you're going to be cursed. So basically, at this point, we only have the positive side of it, but it seems to be another covenant. We should be waiting to see, all right, will the people come through on this covenant God is making? Will they really be his kingdom of priests and a holy nation? That word holy, I think we're all really common with it. But keep that in mind, like what it means to be a holy nation. We'll talk about it a little bit as we see the word come up more. We're going to see it translated in different words. But just remember, this is a charge. He wants his people to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. More on the idea of holy nation, especially in a little bit. But this is in uh, verse 7 now. And it says, So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that Yahweh had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that Yahweh has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to Yahweh. And Yahweh said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe you forever. And this is uh, really similar to what we saw a few chapters ago, I believe in chapter 16, after God, for the first time, gives them water in the wilderness after they complain. He says, oh yeah, the people believed and they will obey and do what Yahweh says. So we have, after, you know, they failed a couple more times after that, but we're having the, the same kind of language spoken over again. But now we're at the mountain. We're going to see a thick cloud coming. So maybe, you know, the, the people are ready to make this promise and to really believe but let me keep reading here to this section. And when Moses told the words of the people to Yahweh, Yahweh said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them. And this is the same Hebrew word for holy. So when you hear consecrate, think holy in the same vein. So go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, Yahweh will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. Um, I want to stop there. That was the end of verse 12. This is really interesting about the limits of the mountain. The mountain of God here, like I already said, we should be kind of thinking in the back of our minds, Exodus 3. And in Exodus 3, again, short-term goal, go up onto the mountain, worship God. And so here we should kind of be puzzled in a sense. So God comes and says, consecrate the people. So basically make them ready to be holy, make them holy and be ready for the third day. Again, Corey already discussed a little bit about that significance there in, in timekeeping and, and the structure there. On the third day, the Lord, so Yahweh, is going to come down on Mount Sinai. So we're kind of moving in the right direction as, as far as keeping in mind Exodus 3 is concerned. God's going to come down onto this mountain. And what should we be expecting? What's a natural conclusion? Well, the people should then go up and Worship God on top of the mountain, just as we're expecting from Exodus 3. But in verse 12, it says, you're going to set limits for the people all around saying, take care not to go up 
the mountain, don't touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the edge of it, put that person to death. Well, why is this? Well, first off, it is a strict on the third day if something is going to happen. But prior to that, don't touch this mountain because you are being consecrated. You are being made holy. Remember, when Moses went up to the mountain, God says, take off your shoes. The place you're standing is holy ground, right? So God's presence dwelling on top of this mountain is not something to, do, to be trifled with. There is something uniquely special set apart about this mountain when God's presence is on it. And so you, as a not yet consecrated people, don't touch it. Because if you do, you need to be put to death. You are not holy as God is holy at this point. So don't touch the mountain. This is a very big deal that this mountain is holy. And up until this point, you guys are not. So Moses goes down from the mountain to the people and consecrates the people. They wash their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Don't even go near a woman. And so we're basically in this idea of consecrating. This is such a big deal where they are washing their garments, symbolizing the washing of themselves. It's going to be something that's going to be very uniquely special, and you should be completely ready and consecrated for it. That is made holy. Let's follow them up. Verse 16, very important. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very long trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now, Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because Yahweh had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. Yahweh came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and Yahweh called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And Yahweh said to Moses, go down and warn the people, lest they break through to Yahweh to look, and many of them perish. Also, let the priests who come near to Yahweh consecrate themselves, lest Yahweh break out against them. And Moses said to Yahweh, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And Yahweh said to him, go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to Yahweh, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. So this is getting pretty weird now. So this is why we took a little pause and talked about, okay, what's up with the idea of going up the mountain and the idea of people being killed for going up the mountain. So we discussed that a little bit of, hey, don't go up until the third day. But then the third day happens. And the people stay at the foot of the mountain. So what, what do we do with this? So something that I had failed to mention just prior when reading verses 9 through 15 there is in verse 13, we have a very specific command. No hand shall touch the mountain. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they, the people, and my English translation says they shall come up to the mountain. Well, according to that reading, it sounds like them coming out of the camp and then standing up at the foot of the mountain is what they were supposed to do. As a matter of fact, most English translations will actually take this translational approach 
and translate this Hebrew word as come up to, or even the word approach. So they can approach the mountain and come up to the mountain on the horn blast, but it doesn't really imply, at least when you read it in English, that they should go up on the mountain. Interestingly, however, this Hebrew word here does not mean approach or go up to the mountain. As a matter of fact, it's well documented among scholars that this is actually specifically commanding on the blast of the trumpet, they shall come up on the mountain. And the reason that our English Bibles translate it this way is to kind of make sense of what happens in the latter half of chapter 19, which we'll go over in just a second. So on the blast of the trumpet, then the people are supposed to go up onto the mountain, which is consistent with what we are expecting from Exodus chapter three, Exodus chapter three, verse 12. Hey, when you guys leave Egypt, come up, worship me on this mountain. And so we're going, okay, they're going to worship God on this mountain. Yes. On the blast of the trumpet, come up onto the mountain. So after you have consecrated yourselves, you've made yourselves holy, you have made yourselves presentable to a holy God, come up, worship this God. That is what we're expecting to happen. However, verse 16 and on, on the morning of the third day, there was craziness, thunders, lightning, God was on top of this mountain, and then a very loud trumpet blast. Okay, so what are we expecting now? Very loud trumpet blast, go up the mountain, right? All the people in the camp trembled. That wasn't what we were expecting. We were expecting them to go up, but instead of going up, they got a little scared. And then Moses brought the people out of the camp, even though they were scared. Hey, let's go meet with God. But they wouldn't go past the foot of the mountain. They took their stand at the foot of the mountain. So if you read it in English, you're tempted to go, yeah, that was what they were supposed to do. But then in Hebrew, it's not at all what they're supposed to do. And, and based on the expectations that were presented in Exodus chapter three, that's not at all what they were supposed to do. They were supposed to go up this mountain and they were a little afraid and then stopped at the foot of the mountain. Now in 18, the people should be up there, but they're not. The sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, basically like, hey guys, hello, you're going to come up. But no, Moses spoke and God answered him in the thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain and the Lord called to Moses to come up onto the mountain and Moses went up. And so now we should be going, oh no, what just happened? The people were supposed to go up. They didn't go up. They stopped at the foot of the mountain. And now God said, okay, Moses, you come up. And only Moses went up. That was not what was supposed to be happening here. Yeah, this is um, so important. And when I usually go through and teach Exodus, I, I really try and highlight this chapter because you were listening like me, you always thought Exodus was just about the plagues and the Exodus, but that only gets you through not even halfway through the book. The book's 40 chapters. The Red Sea crossing happens at chapter 14, but I didn't even realize what all of those plagues were for. Now reading through, looking at the details, we see, oh, that was all for this moment to get up to the mountain. And so just as we've been building up in you know this great drama you guys probably think like man just we get it they're going to the mountain why are you guys building this up so much we're building this up so much so that we can see how big of a letdown exodus 19 is and we should be thinking of other times god um, meets people in high places or people try to go 
high up to God, but then are struck down. Like, especially the Tower of Babylon. Um, the Tower of Babylon, people try to build this tower to build up their own name, right? They try to reach the heavens. They try to reach God on their own terms. And God shot them down because he knew that their pride wasn't good for them. It was an act of grace that he would stop them from pursuing such a vain pursuit. But here, Exodus 19, we should be jumping up and down before the chapter ends. We should be thinking like, yes, this is the moment where God reunites with man up on this mountain. And it's starting to sound a little bit like this new Eden idea where, hey, God's coming to meet with his people. The alliance between heaven and earth are, are, are being merged together again. And so the fact that the people don't do it, I mean, this is a, such a big disobedience. And it's so much bigger than the disobedience we've seen so far. It's like, oh, why are the people grumbling in the wilderness? Or why did Jacob marry two wives or cheat all those people he cheated? Or why did Abram go and sleep with Hagar, like all these stupid decisions. Why did Noah go and get drunk right after the ark? Although those are all really big things. This, this seems like the time when things are really looking up and going to be, be made right, but instead the people blow it. And so just as we saw, um, this is the link from chapter 18 that we wanted to point out. Just as we saw in chapter 18, Jethro is saying, hey, take this weight off of you and put it on the others. And then we're seeing the bill to chapter 19 is like, oh, yeah, everyone will now hear from God themselves. But again, the burdens put right back on Moses because of the disobedience of the people. And so it's, it's just really, really heavy. And this disobedience has grave consequences. Um, we bring up Ray Lubeck and John Salehammer a lot. Um, Ray Lubeck's the one who introduced the importance of this chapter to me. And this next idea I'm going to bring up. So this next idea is something that John Salehammer brings up in his book. And it's the idea that charts out and tracks Israel's disobedience into laws given. Basically, the idea is as follows. Essentially, Israel is called to come up the mountain. That was established in chapter 3. It's established again in chapter 19 at the very beginning. Like we saw, they're going to be a kingdom of priests. And I had talked about this being kind of covenantal language here at the beginning of chapter 19 for a specific reason. And that is that God is establishing a covenant here. There is no doubt about that. And we're going to see that covenant kind of come into fruition here in the next few chapters. But the covenant seems to change in a sense. Basically, at the beginning of 19, we have this covenant language that suggests, come up the mountain, be a kingdom of priests, and all you really need to do is obey my voice. It's kind of reminiscent of the original covenant in the garden where, hey, be my people, just obey my voice, don't eat from that tree over there. And that's kind of what we're hoping will happen, right? But we see the people disobey here. And now, as we move on in today's episode and then later into the following ones, we're going to see that after the people's disobedience, no longer are they going to be a kingdom of priests. As a matter of fact, at the ending here of chapter 19, we're going to see that now, because the people failed to go up the mountain, they're barred from the mountain. You can't go up the mountain. The Lord says to Moses in 21, go down and warn the people lest they break through and they come to look and many perish. Also, 
Let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. What priests? I thought they were all going to be priests. Well, they failed to come up the mountain. Now they're needing a mediator, like Corey just pointed out, Moses, and they're needing priests. They're no longer going to be a kingdom of priests. They're going to be a kingdom with priests. And then we're going to see what's commonly known as the Ten Commandments or the Ten Words given. And so that's kind of our first little bit of what we'll call law code that's really given in the section. And we're going to find that this is kind of a pattern that actually Salehammer points out. The pattern is God gives a little bit of law code, and that law code is followed by pretty much direct disobedience. After that direct disobedience, we see a little bit more law code given, followed by another grave disobedience, followed by a little bit more law code, followed by grave disobedience. And so Salehammer makes the case that had Israel obeyed in the first place, the law as we now know it today would have been different. We probably would have seen a completely different outworking of this covenant than what we actually end up seeing. It's possible even that what we now experience in the new covenant, which we'll talk about way down the line, might have actually been achievable by Israel had they actually obeyed. The language seems to suggest something similar. And so we'll kind of put a pin in that. We'll come back to that as we experience some of these disobediences and some of these givings of law codes. We're going to be jumping into 20, which is kind of the first, like I said, giving of this law code. But before we do, one other concept that we should point out, now that we're starting to get into this, what we know as the law, it's this. First off, up until this point, what we've had is narrative. And so basically, we've seen an outworking story. You know, it's flowed like you were reading a book. But all of a sudden, we get into kind of the first section of law code discourse, where it's a little different. The genre seems to change a little bit. It reads differently. And so keep that in mind that the Bible often changes genres. We did point that out when we came across some poetry earlier. The Bible often changes genres and the authors do that in order to emphasize certain things and in order to convey specific meanings. So whenever there's a change in genre, just note that in the back of your mind and ask what is the author trying to do by the change in in genre or type. And then the other thing that I wanted to point out is now we're getting into what we as Christians know as the quote, air quotes, law. And the ancient Israelites and then even the Jews today would call this by the Hebrew word Torah. And you've heard us mention that word probably a few times now in this podcast, the word Torah. But that word Torah is what we translate often in our English Bibles as the word law. And it's kind of a misnomer in a sense, because this word Torah is not best translated as law. The English word law kind of denotes this idea of totality, like kind of in a courtroom, you know, you broke the law, you have transgressed the absolute, this is what thou shalt do, and you did not do it, which is kind of a little bit of an overreach as to what these laws actually are intended to do as put forth by the author, that, like we're going to see. And so a better translation of that word Torah would probably be instruction. Uh, as a matter of fact, oftentimes the translators will translate that word instruction or law. It's kind of an interchangeable sort of thing, but it is better 
understood as this term instruction. And the reason being is because, like we talked about really at the beginning of this podcast in Genesis, the very introduction to the kind of the crux of the issue, the whole biblical issue, the conflict, is really about wisdom. Whose wisdom are you going to choose? Are you going to choose God's wisdom or are you going to choose human wisdom? And so basically what God starts doing through this Torah, through this instruction, is he starts instructing his people in the ways of his wisdom. And so whenever they fail, in accordance with with Salehammer's observations, God gives more instruction saying, nope, it's not how it's supposed to be. That's not, not what you're supposed to do. This is what you're supposed to do. Here's more instruction. So getting into chapter 20, it starts with, and God spoke all these words saying. So we think of Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5 as the Ten Commandments. Um, The idea in Hebrew is that they are the ten words, because here it says God spoke these words, and then there's a list of ten things to do and or not do, right? And so one thing to keep in mind as we get into these ten words, this matches up with the Genesis creation account, the other place where God gave 10 words. We picked up on this idea in the first or second episode. I think our first episode was a bit of an introduction. So technically our second episode, we talked about God created the world in seven different days of stuff, but it was all 10 words. So the big difference we're going to see here is that the response is different. In one case, I guess also the subject is different. So in one case, you know, God's telling stars and galaxies and planets to go out into the sky and exist and be there. And they listen. And here we're going to see God tell his covenant people, hey, don't go and worship that stick over there. And we're going to see them saying, what? as their faces are dirty from being prostrate and worshiping a stick, right? And so we see the creation account, even the big balls of gas in the sky, listen to God, even the grass, the mountains. We think, you know, the mountains are hard of hearing because it's literally rock, but humans are the ones who are not able to listen. And I think maybe a shared truth out of this, why don't we all be more like stars and just listen to God. Uh, Anyway, so these are the 10 words and it's comparative to Genesis. So let's get started. And the second verse, it says, I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall serve no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. All right, so here's the first two commandments. Kind of sounds like one, right? God's first. Keep him first. But, you know, something that's kind of odd, and maybe it's just odd because we as humans sometimes tend to think of God like another human. And so if we think of God like a human, 
someone who is on par in worth and honor and power with us, we might think that this is kind of, I don't know, egocentric. It can almost sound obnoxious and think like, wow, this God is so strict. I mean, yeah, sure, he made the heavens and the earth and these people, but how is he going to ask for them to worship him alone? Like, what if the people want to go and worship other things? Well, in that second podcast, or maybe, no, the third podcast, we talked about a tale of two wisdoms. Dylan just mentioned that Genesis, although there's no commandments given, it lays out God's wisdom, right? And so one thing we started from the very beginning of the show is that God's wisdom is just better than our wisdom. And it's not like it's just better for God and he's like at the top of this pyramid scheme and tricking us all into working for him. But as we've seen from the character of God by his actions through his word is that he's a really good God who cares for us and only wants good for us. I mean, bad things didn't enter the world until we messed up. So we see as God is commanding things like, don't worship other gods before me. It's not because of his ego, like we're going to hurt his feelings or like he needs this praise. He's totally fulfilled in who he is, as he is. However, he realizes that honor is only rightly due to him because he's the only holy one. And this is also good for us. So not only is honor going to where it belongs, it's good for us to worship the right thing. It is bad for us to worship other things. So in these two commandments of worshiping and serving only God and nothing else, we're honoring God and living this good life. This is an idea of Proverbs more so, talking about the the good life as Proverbs rips off of Genesis. Pretty much everything rips off of Genesis is what we're going to say in this podcast throughout, but I'm only being a little facetious there, though. This is huge. God is not a bully on an anthill with a magnifying glass. He's a God who is commanding good things for his people. So if we start seeing God for who he is as God and not projecting what we're like on him, we'll see these commandments with such a new beauty. And it's going to be amazing to, to read these over and take these words in of, man, God would do so much just to show his love for me, to make sure I, I don't go off astray. He, he will even punish me so that I come back to him, just as, you know, someday I'm going to have to punish my child, although it's hard to imagine. She just turned seven months old today, and she's just so cute, doesn't do anything wrong. That's a lie. Shouldn't lie on the podcast. But uh, someday I'm going to have to discipline her, not because I don't like her, I adore her, I love her, but I'm going to want to have her do the right thing. I love her so much, I will discipline her when she does the wrong thing because I want her to do what is right, to live a life honoring to God. Verse 7, we see, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. We'll camp here for just a second as well because this is another one of those commandments that's really interesting and often misunderstood. So you probably have come across the notion in your travels that if you say, oh my God, when exclaiming some horror that you have broken this particular commandment. And I mean, I suppose to some extent, 
you probably shouldn't be throwing the name of God around. But is that really what is going on with this commandment? You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Or is it something even more insidious than simply exclaiming, oh, my God? And I would submit that it is. We, uh, Corey and I, in referencing the work of Dr. Carmen Imes, would actually propose, along with her, who first turned us on to this idea, that this particular command actually is a reference to the fact that God's name is placed on the people of Israel. It's written on them. It's put on their foreheads. As a matter of fact, the high priest would wear a little thing on his head, a big metal plate that said, holy belonging to Yahweh on it, when he would enter into the tabernacle, which we'll talk about later, and to commune with God. And so it is this idea that this name actually has been written on Israel's head. And likewise, we see the similar language used in the New Testament for the name of God written now upon us. The idea is that God's name is written on his people. We are no longer people that can do and live in any way we see fit insofar as we now represent in a very real sense, the name of God in our actions. When we do something, we have God's name written on our heads. People are looking at us and going, isn't that a Christian? And in the same vein, people back in this time were looking at Israel going, hey, isn't that God's people acting like that? And so thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. This commandment is referencing this idea that these people and us too, the shared truth would, would definitely apply to us, that the name of God has been written on their heads. And as such, any action that is not in accordance with godly wisdom that can actually profane God's name because it brings scorn by other nations looking on is prohibited. They must act in accordance with the holy stature uh, that they now have as God's people. They are set apart for God, and any action that is contrary to that will bring scorn upon God's name, and God is absolutely forbidding that here. It's kind of funny to me that, you know, the idea of don't take God's name in vain, when I used to think of it as just as speaking, like is commonly thought of, it's like the easiest commandment. Well, maybe like don't murder. I'm pretty good at not murdering people. I'm 100% on that one so far. Uh, but even as, you know, Jesus talks about these things and, and the heart of these commands, like don't murder, don't get angry at someone. It's like, well, I, I suck at that then. But the idea of not taking God's name in vain always sounded like the easiest thing. But actually, when you put it that way, it's the hardest one. It's like, don't bear God in a bad way. Like I need to watch out like every fiber of my being because he's not going to hold me guiltless. If I'm saying I'm representing God and act in a terrible way. And we, we've all seen people who do that, I'm sure, in our daily lives who say, oh yeah, I love God, but then they go and treat people terribly. It's like, no, this person doesn't represent God, not the God of the Bible. I don't know if you guys have ever had to apologize for someone who has misrepresented God. But I just find it so interesting that, you know, God's people, the Jews, and even today Christians take this, amazing command that's so beautiful and 
just bring it down to the letter of the law, which, you know, again, that Hebrew word John talked about doesn't mean to say, it means to lift up, to carry. How are you carrying God's name? And it's, again, the hardest command, the one that provokes the most thought is reduced to something really simple, something we can kind of go throughout our day without even thinking about when we just live by the letter of the law, we're concerned with this legalism. So just really, really cool laws. And we're going to see as we read these things together, if you don't already have like a beautiful appreciation for God's words, even his commands, even though we talk about these commands being a type of punishment, they're so beautiful and they are a grace being given. Um, as we go through these things, we'll see, wow, God is beautiful. What a heart he has. Let's keep going on that note. The next word is remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day to Yahweh your God. And on it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days Yahweh made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore Yahweh blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So here, God refers back to what he did on the first page of scripture, right? And so we saw the first mention of holy was in the creation account where he separated this one day from the other six days of work. So the six days of work, they're good days. Everything he did was good, but the work and the common days was separated from this day. So he's, we talked about it then, but holiness is this idea of separation, and in God's eyes, holiness is something set apart for him, right? So it's not okay just to have a Sabbath day if you're in this covenant people and, and do the things you want to do. It's no, take this day off of your work and your personal gain and live it for God. Praise him, right? Set your minds and your hearts on him. And so this idea gets its start at the very first page of scripture. We'll go ahead and move through the last couple in kind of rapid succession here. We'll probably bring them up later at various points in the podcast. But for the sake of time, going now through real quickly, honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Don't kill people. Probably a good one. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal things. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not cover his wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything else that is your neighbor's. So there we have it, the 10 words. So in verse 18, then it says, Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we'll listen, but don't let God speak to us or we're going to die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. And so we finish the 10 words, and then we have this short little narrative section again at the end, seemingly referencing back to 19. So like we already talked about in chapter 19, we have this idea that the people are to go up the mountain. They're going to be a kingdom of priests, but they don't. 
They fail to go up the mountain because they're afraid. And because of their failure, they elect Moses to go up the mountain and then they're barred from going up the mountain. So Moses goes up, he gets the 10 words, gives them to the people. And then the people are still afraid. They go, wow, that's some crazy power that's going on on top of that mountain, the, the lightning and the thunder, and it's just scary. And so they are afraid again and tremble. And now they're not even standing close to the mountain. They're just standing way the heck back there. They're like, whoa, we don't want any of that. So we kind of get this reiteration of the people's failures that have kind of brought them now to this point. We were expecting short-term goal, go up the mountain and worship God. We saw that in chapter 3, verse 12. And so we've been expecting it this whole time. Get out of Egypt. Go worship God on top of Horeb or Sinai. Same place. And they don't do it. And now they're so afraid that they're standing afar off telling Moses, Moses, you speak to God for us. We don't want anything to do with him. He's going to kill us. Like, you let us know what he's going to say, but don't let him talk to us by ourselves. And so this weird, crazy, ironic reversal that goes from God saying, hey, come up the mountain and be a kingdom of priests to the people saying, we don't want to even hear from God because we're going to die if we do. It's absolutely crazy. So Moses says to the people, don't fear. God's come to test you that the fear of him may be before you. Well, it's definitely before them, but probably not in the way that Moses is here saying. They need to have a healthy respect fear, but they're just flat out We're going to die afraid. So Moses says, don't fear, but don't sin. Nevertheless, we end this section here with this kind of horrible section. The people stood far off and Moses drew near. Is that what we were supposed to see? Is that what we were supposed to get from the people getting to the mountain from 19 and 20? If if that was what was supposed to happen, then somebody goofed to use a line from White Christmas. Yeah, last thought. This very idea right here, the people staying far off and depending on an intercessor, this is why we need Jesus, right? So a big shared truth that we see here in Exodus, and it's not just the people of Israel in Exodus, it's all throughout the Bible and throughout human history that people are unable to do what it's right in God's eyes. Right. Adam and Eve had the choice, but they messed up. And it's not like it was just them. Like any human would have made that choice. It seems like that is what that story is teaching us. Now, this story is saying that we're all going to fall short of the way in which God wants us to do things. We're all going to blow it. But we, we need someone to intercede for us. So just as Moses was able to stick in and intercede for the people... Um, This is an idea that Deuteronomy chapter 18 brings up. It says, this is why I'm going to bring a prophet who's like Moses. Because my people, any person, cannot make it to me. I'm going to bring an intercessor that will bridge the gap from me to them. Because as God's showing in these chapters, God wants to be with his people. But the only thing getting in the way is human rebellion. So God is going to make a way through an intercessor. So this chapter, oddly enough, screams the gospel, the need for Jesus. But until then, until that need is fulfilled, yeah, we're leaving off in a place where things are looking really terrible for the people. Definitely not good. 
I think that for the past few episodes, we've left on not good cliffhangers. It just keeps getting worse. I don't know what we would expect, though. So go ahead and tune in next week to see how the people get themselves out of the muck this time. Yeah, like I said, next week and then the following couple of weeks, we're going to be jumping into some more interesting texts on law codes. We're going to be dealing a little bit more with uh, a different genre now. So we're still going to see some narrative, but we're also going to be seeing some other stuff. And so we're going to kind of have to wrestle with how that is utilized by the author to convey the meaning here in Exodus. So tune in for that when we get there. We're going to go ahead and wrap up here. Thank you guys so much for tuning into the show this week. I hope you guys have been blessed by it. This is going to be a pinnacle section as we move forward. There's so much in the scriptures that rely on your interpretation of Exodus 19 and 20. So everything kind of centers around this. It's kind of like a mountain in Exodus itself. So really grapple with what we've said today in chapter 19 and 20 and read it for yourself and really think about it because it is going to be monumentally important. If you guys are blessed by this podcast, we definitely covet your prayers. Please continue to pray for the podcast. Please continue to pray for Corey and I as we prep for future podcasts and bring this material to you guys. If you guys would like to help out the podcast beyond praying for it, you can do so by leaving a review for it. Uh, If you leave a review on iTunes or on Apple Podcasts, Those are the top podcast platforms, and so those help the algorithm the most to get our podcast out there and to have randos pick it up and listen to it. So that would be one great way to do it. Also, we do pay for the podcast completely out of pocket. If you want to come alongside us and help us out in that endeavor, you can do that by donating on the Patreon page. Patreon is a crowdfunding platform for episodic content like this show. And uh, you can get to that by going to our website, which is thebibleisastory.com, and then clicking on Donate. I have a link up on there that'll automatically take you to the Patreon page, and you can donate there. If you want to chat or if you want to ask a question, the email address is scripturechronicles at gmail.com. And then, as I've already mentioned, the website, thebibleisastory.com, and we have a Facebook page as well. Check us out on either of those. Those are the best places for real-time information. Got a blog on our website. New content is coming out very soon. So stay tuned for that. Check it out. I think that's everything. So, shalom, adios. Wow, got it. Nice.